Hello and welcome to Health in a Handbasket, your podcast about the sexy world of healthcare engineering. I'm Fidi Sakta and I'll be your host. I'm the Marketing and Community Manager at UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering. And although I don't always understand what's written in the research papers published by our academics, I know that what we're doing in the world of healthcare engineering is important and impactful. And I want to share that with you by speaking to those who know a bit more about it than me. From today's handbasket, we're looking at who all this tech is for. Is it all just tick boxes, shiny new gadgets and devices? Is it useful? Does your postcode impact your care? I have quite a vested interest here, as a brown woman from a lower socioeconomic area of England, so it'd be good to hear how technology can impact your healthcare. So, hello B, how are you? Hi Fadoos, I'm good thanks, how are you doing? Yeah, good. So B is a PhD student specialising in the field of neurodegeneration, where her research focuses on developing computational models to gain a deeper understanding of disease progression. She's also the editor at Chalk Dust, a magazine for the mathematically curious. Let's start with something easy. What's your research about, B? Okay, so my research is about using techniques kind of from machine learning and mathematical modelling to try and understand how the disease evolves in people living with rarer types of dementia. Mm -hmm. So what kind of dementia? How rare are we talking about? Yeah, so dementia is kind of like this overarching term. The most common form is Alzheimer's. So that's over about 60% of all dementia cases in the Mm -hmm. UK. But then there's other types of dementia, which affect things which aren't memory. So Alzheimer's is typically associated with initial problems with cognition Mm. and memory. So forgetting things or not understanding things. But there's different types of dementia which affect different parts of the brain. So, for example, one of the ones I look at is primary progressive aphasia. And it's a bit of a tongue twister. It's marked out by initial problems with language and communication. So your memory and cognition is probably preserved, but one of the first symptoms you're going to present with is struggling to speak and communicate and Mm. also understand how others speak and communicate. Ah, okay. And how are you using AI to kind of tackle primary... Progressive aphasia. Progressive aphasia, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So... What I'm interested in is once we've got these data sets, so we've got all these observations of symptoms or MRI scans, is how can we use that to inform our understanding of the disease? And I do that through developing models. So it's a bit of a mix of mathematical models, but then Mm. also with machine learning or AI used in there to try and improve these models and how well they describe the data sets in question. And what exactly is a computational computational? Yeah. What exactly is a computational model? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the word model or mathematical model, computational model mm. can seem really daunting. And I kind of like to think of it as being a little bit like a train set. Okay. So like a model train. In that when you have this train set, the model maker is trying to sort of approximate reality. It's a version of what you see, mm. but it's not a perfect representation. And Ah, a mathematical model is a little bit like that. My equations are like the train set and I'm trying to mimic reality, but it's never going to be a perfect representation. So you're going to use the models you create to kind of um, track people and their aphasia and then use that to find solutions to it? Yeah, that's the hope. The hope is that these mathematical models give us 
a better understanding of maybe the sequence that things occur in. Mm. So if you're able to say which area of the brain you start to see dementia or atrophy in first, or perhaps if you're able to say which symptom occurs first, Mm. then you're able to better target drugs and care and how you look Uh, after these people. Okay, that's so interesting. And why is it important to know about these less common forms of dementia? Well, to me, one of the really important things is that they're a lot harder to care for. So they tend to be diagnosed earlier. So a lot of people are going to be diagnosed with these before the age of 65. So we call them a young onset dementia. And then also because of these unusual symptoms, they can be quite hard to care for and also to experience living Mm. with. But in particular for the caregivers and the carers, understanding how to deal with these more unusual symptoms can be quite tricky. Is is that because it's not common, it's not seen in like media and stuff like that? Absolutely. So like the doctor's awareness of it is lesser. And yeah, we don't have representations in media for these types of rare dementias. Um, You mentioned the carers or caregivers. And that's something that you're really passionate about in your work and in your motivations as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important because I think caring for people living with dementia is a very difficult thing. And it's also a job which often falls on certain people in society disproportionately. So I guess there's two main types of caregivers we see. And this is kind of across healthcare, not just in dementia, but maybe we can talk about it specifically in the case of dementia. So we see paid caregivers so that's the sort of people who'd be working in nursing homes or care homes Mm. and these are disproportionately women they're normally on really bad work contracts Um, also disproportionately people from certain backgrounds and Mm. we're not really valuing them or paying them what they're worth because this is a really important job how do we care for the elderly in our society and then I guess the other type of caregiver really is the unpaid caregiver so the family members the daughters the wives the husbands the children of people living with dementia and then this is quite a sort of feminist problem because these also tend to be disproportionately women and Mm. it's another example of how women tend to take on a lot of caregiving roles and taking care of the family and the home roles in society so we see that this is mostly women it's unpaid and it's kind of undervalued Mm. so I guess that's where your AI and your modeling comes in because then you can see who those people are So to me, one of the really exciting things about this is that I can use my background, which is in mathematics, that's what my undergraduate was in, in a way that really helps people who are disadvantaged in our society, Mm. which is something I'm super passionate about. And as I was just saying, this sort of issue of who does the labour and who's the caregiver is a feminist issue, but it's more than that, it's an intersectional issue. It's also related to who gets cared for, who gets the right healthcare they need through our NHS. It's sort of tying all these different ideas together. So a big part of the modelling done by me and the research group I'm in is how can we kind of spot these initial symptoms of dementia? So trying to pick out patterns from MRI scans or Mm. symptoms which might indicate someone has dementia earlier than they currently would based on presenting in a clinic where they'd then get diagnosed by a neurologist. Back in July, there was a big headline about a new dementia drug which has been developed. It costs actually over $80,000 a year for a single person of treatment. So this drug isn't very accessible. But also beyond that, it has to be used in the first like very initial stage of someone having dementia so this drug isn't really that useful if you start receiving it post-diagnosis we almost need to be able to identify if people have dementia 
five, ten years earlier mm. than we currently do for this drug to really be viable. So that's quite a big problem then. How are we helping people in the UK right now? So those without access to £80,000 a year or a per person? Yeah, I think I actually don't know the exact figure, but I think it's mm. upwards of $80,000 oh, a okay. year, um, which is shocking, right? Yeah. That is so much money. I don't insane. think it costs that much to kind of like give drugs to people. Well, I don't think it does. It's not the raw cost. It's it's the pharma companies wanting yeah. profit and to recoup the money from those years of research. Oh, shocking. So how do we, how are we helping people with dementia right now with, with that type, with the type of aphasia you talked about? How are we helping them? Well, with that, the type of aphasia I talked about specifically, when I work with a charity here at UCL called Rare Dementia Support, who are able to offer help with it. But we don't currently have any drug treatments. So it's uh. all about how do we care for these people. And that's actually quite a big problem in the UK because mm. we have a shortage of caregivers. Mm. And there was a statistic I read online. I'll read it out for you. So I read that... Um, Dementia UK, who are one of the big dementia charities, said that this year they are expecting nine times more safeguarding calls than they were two years ago. What's a safeguarding call? So this is people ringing yeah. up and saying like they have they're really worried about ah, their person okay. who's living with dementia. Mm. Like there's a risk here. They they're not getting the help they need. They're mm. not getting the care they need. Mm. So these are pretty serious problems. Yeah. And I think this kind of links in with sort of the, the cost of drugs and it's all to do with the privatization of our healthcare system yeah. and also austerity meaning that the government's spending less money on mm. these issues this makes me think of do you remember during covid there was all these headlines about matt hancock and how he um gave the green light to elderly people going back to care homes and then infecting the people in those care homes if they had covid it just sounds like a similar thing to that yeah, absolutely. It's a great example for Deuce. I think that was really an example of how little mm. our government cares about a lot of society, in this mm. case specifically sort of the elderly and people living with dementia. That was a complete sort of mismanagement of COVID. Mm. But I think sadly it also came from a political perspective of, you know, they didn't really care about getting those people's vote at the next election because they're at the end of their lives. And that's really dark. Yeah. I also think that we live in a bit of an ageist society um, where there's not that community aspect. There's not, it's a bit of a, a, a lack of care, coldness. When people at the beginning heard that COVID kind of like mainly affected el- the elderly, people didn't seem like they cared. And I remember during COVID, like I would hear of stories of like friends of friends and stuff like that, of how the young people in the household would be going out, doing whatever they wanted, meeting friends, all of that stuff. But they had elderly parents or grandparents at home. And it's like, do you not care? Do you not care that you could be infecting your family, regardless of your family, your your family, the people around you, all of that stuff. People just did not seem to care. Yeah, it's, it's really sad and... I thought what was really interesting then is you use the word community mm. a lot. And I think this is kind of where it goes beyond sort of these tech solutions we have to how we care for these people and into something a bit more societal and political. Mm. Like, how do we look after people as a community? And yeah. how do we care for people? How do we even envisage we should be caring for these people? Right. Mm. And a big part of this is to do with government funding. Like, if the government's not going to put any money mm. into the NHS... In fact, it's depleting it of resources every day and privatising chunks of it. Then it becomes much more difficult to care and it becomes sort of shifted onto the community to take up responsibility for that. 
Yeah, and I guess that's where those female family carers or whatever come in where they're not paid yeah. to do it, but then they're like, oh, but then my mum doesn't get any care or like my you know grandparents don't get any care because there's no funding for it. And you're like, okay, I can't just leave them there. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then it's, it's an extra burden on those people, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we don't really value that as work. Mm, yeah, you don't get paid for it. And it's exactly. like, oh, you should be looking after them. But okay, but why is it only the females, of, mainly the females of the family doing it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that happens when we like privatise the NHS. Mm. We push that burden of care more onto the individual. Mm. So we see this in other things, like as it's becoming harder in the UK, I think, massively in recent months to get doctor's appointments Mm. it pushes that sort of burden of self-diagnosis and care onto the individual and the same thing is happening with the elderly and caregivers so the burden is on these family members it's unpaid workers and this sort of complete lack of respect for the labor which goes into it it doesn't mean it's like the childcare thing as well though isn't it yeah it's like apparently childcare in the uk is one of the most expensive and people so then you have to like either stay at home or you go crazy because you can't afford it and it's it's economically unviable like mm, it doesn't make mm, sense yeah completely and none, none of us are economists here like how do yeah, we realize that it's so expensive to raise a kid or look after a family member but it'd be cheaper for the government to just pay so socialism Oh, <laughs> not the s word you can't say the s word uh, but i mean yeah socialism i think people will forget that socialism has done amazing things for this country um, in terms of like free education, the NHS, like you mentioned, our roads being catered for, you know, potholes being potholed over, that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it's called, filled in with tar, right? Um, I like potholed over. Yeah. <laughs> no, I only said that because um, I'm from Luton and in Luton, uh, they've done like a really good job filling in potholes uh, for really... some reason, but for the last like 10 years, they it was a mess. But this summer, a really good year for potholes. Um, wow. Yeah. Not the tangent we want. No, this I hope that goes in. I really hope that goes in. <laughs> um, but yeah, socialism has done a lot of many great things for this country. I think it gets a bad reputation, right? Socialism. Mm. Yeah, but, um, it's been it's been kind of like used as ammunition these days. Absolutely. Uh, feminism as well. Yeah. yeah. But I think uh, socialist theory really has a lot of ideas as to how we solve these problems mm. how do we care for people how do we think of care as a society this is all in the socialist literature mm. like bringing it back to the community instead of like individualism and yeah you make your own money kind of thing but that doesn't always work because you need a community around you to support you emotionally sometimes financially yeah to help you make your own money in your own way kind of thing And I think people forget that a lot. I think it doesn't happen. It's not just about having better communities. It's also Mm. about having better government provision in the first place. Mm. If you have a really strong national healthcare system where everyone's able to access what they need and it's free at the point of use, then I think it becomes easier to also form the communities and sort of care as a community as well because you don't have this sort of individual economic burden and stress related to accessing healthcare. So you don't have that everyday st- stress of like, oh, like, I've got this ailment. Yeah. I don't know if I'm dying or not. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's true because like, yeah. people can't go to the doctors. My friends are always telling me about how, you know, they've got this issue. They're like, oh, it might be this really serious thing yeah. or it might just be nothing. But you just don't know. And it's that's a stress-inducing 
yeah. like time of your life. Exactly. And so if you can't access your GP mm. or get an appointment at the hospital, then that sort of stress and burden goes on to the individual. Yeah. And I think that's something we're seeing increasingly. Mm. So I've actually, I read something really interesting the other day about how sort of people saying that it's a, the increase in self-diagnosis can be a positive because it's giving you the power to make decisions about your own health mm. rather than it always being in the hands of doctors who often sort of people from a yeah. specific background, like maybe quite wealthy white men, yeah. stereotypically, historically would have been doctors. But I think there's also this negative in that it makes it, it it's it's mm. sort of all this sort of personal responsibility to be able to diagnose mm. and think about it and I think being able to access healthcare through a healthcare provider is so important yeah. because it externalises that fear. But also to kind of like affirm what you have. Like I remember yeah. I had a, a thyroid infection a few years back and I looked up all the symptoms on Google and it was a thyroid infection. And I went to the doctor and I was like, I think I have a thyroid infection and these are the symptoms I have and you need to prescribe me antibiotics. And he did. And then I was fine. So it, it was a thyroid infection. Um, so I think it does help as well. But I needed the doctor to affirm that diagnosis or, or what I thought um so having that kind of person and it also just helped it also just helped me going to the doctor speaking to him and not just having it at home and just yeah exactly you thinking, just worry right yeah I'm like worry about it. it's and you know like everyone's always like oh you know I've got like a lump it was a lump on my throat I was like, oh, I've got a lump on my throat is it cancer like it always goes to like some yeah like it, 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 really you, yeah you fear the worst right yeah you fear the worst and I'm like no no it's just I'm, I'm just talking myself into a little tizzy but yeah <laughs> you're right that community care like even the talking to the GP that's a sense of like is is the community it's like interaction which is nice and which we're losing yeah which is a bit sad absolutely I think so and there's a lot of ideas sort of within socialism about how we care for people as a collective and it being mm. a group level thing so Rather than sort of you having individual responsibility for your grandmother or your mm. father, spreading out this responsibility yeah. amongst a group of people. Yeah. And then we can sort of share the burden and responsibility. No, definitely. And I, I don't think it's just like, you know, when you start labelling things, I think people get scared off. And I don't think it's, it's not even just a socialism thing. It's, it's like people do want to care for each other, but we're slowly losing things like community centres and, you know, libraries and all of these places that people used to hang out in, um, yeah. especially the elderly as well. Like, yeah, you know, they don't have that kind of care anymore. And like with young people as well, it's like yeah. you see a rise in like knife crime and this that, and the other. And you're like, okay, but these kids have nowhere to go. So then they go into like bad places or with bad people. And you wonder, okay, why is this happening? Well, I think the government has loads yeah, yeah, to definitely. answer for here because it's all austerity. Yeah. It's these constant cutbacks to public services yeah. like hospitals, libraries, community centres, which yeah. is driving this. And it's not for a lack of money because we all know this government has money. Yeah, you know, exactly. we spend money on PPI and on boats or whatever that <laughs> thing was, you know. Over floating boats for migrants. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, horrendous. Like, like okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we spend money on all sorts of ridiculous things. Oh, wasn't it that plane as well? Like to um, during COVID to repaint the plane in the uh, in blue, red, and white and stuff. And it, it and like Boris Johnson spent like a million pounds on that. Yeah, it's, okay. yeah, it's got a million here, got a million stuff, there. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we do have this money, and we're spending it on ridiculous things. Yeah, and it's just this sort of lack of prioritizing the right commitments. Yeah, definitely. And if you have sort of 
40 odd years of austerity, which mm. is basically what we've had in the UK since the 1980s, mm. of cutbacks followed by cutbacks, then you see the NHS in the state it's in today. Yeah, and I think it kind of like goes back to what you said, like with increased rates of dementia and so on. So if you isolate people, like you need that social interaction. You isolate people, yeah. they're so at important. an increased risk of dementia. Um, I think I read a UCL study yeah, or no. something on that. Um, yeah, like having good social interaction mm. is one of the biggest sort of buffers to actually loads of different diseases yeah, yeah. it's so important for our health having people around us and having social interactions yeah so we're not meant to be individuals just chasing money yeah kind of thing. i think yeah. i i don't i don't see the full happiness in that like you need people around you like if you think about what brings you happiness it's kind of like the people around you yeah rather than chasing. it's not money yeah it's not it's not money it's never money yeah um i mean money makes you comfortable and then you kind of like, then you look at, okay, who are the people around me and who do I love and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's a very uh, sweet anti-capitalist message produce. Yeah. I didn't realise I was that anti-capitalist. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's nice to have nice people around you instead of, and, and supportive people around you. And that's what we should be chasing. Yeah. And it's really important. Yeah. Just for our healthcare. Like, like you said, like it's good, you know, to help stop us... Um, increasing rates of dementia and all of that kind of stuff is to have good people around us yeah. and be happy. <laughs> be all this talk about socialism is super interesting, but do we have any solutions to the problem? Yeah, I think that's a really tricky thing to answer because the problem is these are big problems. Yeah. These are big societal problems. We've sort of in this conversation we've gone from just like how do we care mm. about for people with dementia to sort of how do we fix society and that's the thing they're these really big societal intersectional issues and fixing them is going to take time and probably people with much better ideas than I do but I think coming back to sort of dementia and how we care for people with dementia I'm quite optimistic I mean I think we often see like this bad rep for AI and machine learning and complete other topic to talk about is sort of the pitfalls ahead for that but I'm optimistic that we can use it like in the work I'm doing to try and learn more about dementia mm. these specific forms of dementia and hence sort of how we care for people with this. Thank you B. Um, I think that's a nice note to end on with solutions to a problem and I really enjoyed our conversation. I do think you know we should all be happy and find happiness in this life outside of kind of like money and care for each other. Yeah. Which is such an important thing because it makes you happy as well, caring for other people. Absolutely. So you're ending on a note of collective action. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, hopefully people listening in draw some inspiration and kind of like chat to that friend or knock on a neighbour kind of thing. But yeah, thank you, Absolutely. B. Yeah, thanks, Fadis. It was a really good conversation. Health in a Handbasket is produced by UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering and edited by Keris Bradley. The Institute of Healthcare Engineering brings together leading researchers to develop the tools and devices that will make your life better. We're using this podcast to share all the amazing work taking place. You can learn more by searching UCL Health in a Handbasket or following the link in the show notes. So share with your friends and family if you found this interesting. We're available everywhere, especially where you just listen to us. <laughs>